Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to be blind? Yeah, I've got glaucoma. I've had glaucoma for about 20 years. It's a disease that if it were left unchecked, it would lead to blindness. Uh, Fortunately, there's medicine. I put drops in my eyes every day. And I've got an eye doctor who checks up several times a year just to make sure that my eyes aren't deteriorating. But it's, you know, it's caused me on occasion to imagine what would it be like to be blind? You know, what, what if I could no longer see Sue's smile? You know, what if I could no longer see the pages of all the books I like to read? What if I couldn't see mountains and oceans and things you can't see in Illinois anyway? Uh, (laughs) You know, what what if I couldn't see the Monet exhibit at the Art Institute? What if I couldn't see the Cubs win another World Series in a hundred years? You know, have you ever wondered what it would be like if you were blind, if you couldn't see? There's a story about a man who was born blind that's recorded in John chapter 9. Jesus is walking down the street one day and this blind beggar is there and Jesus stops and he kneels down and he spits in the dirt and he makes some mud and he applies it to the guy's eyes and then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the guy leaves blind and he comes back home seeing. And the community is super pumped. His family is super pumped over this miracle. The only people who aren't excited about it are the local religious leaders, the Pharisees. And it's because they're, they're rule keepers. And Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath day. And according to God's word, the Sabbath is to be reserved for rest and for worship. And, and healing, they deemed to be work. It broke the non-work rule. And so they hauled the guy's parents in and they said, you know, how do you explain this? And the parents didn't want to get on the bad side of the Pharisees and get kicked out of the synagogue. So they said, well, you know, our son is old enough to answer for himself. Why don't you bring him in? So they hauled in the recently healed uh, blind man. They said, yeah, how do you explain what happened? And he said, well, I don't have an explanation. All I can tell you is I once was blind and now I can see. And then he added... He said, this Jesus must be from God, don't you think? Well, now that was like waving a red cape in front of a raging bull. Now they were really angry and they called him all sorts of names and kicked him out of the synagogue. And Jesus tracked them down and he used, he used this as an opportunity to teach a crowd of people who had gathered to teach them about spiritual blindness John 9, verse 39, Jesus says, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see, or those who think they see, will become blind. The Pharisees thought they could see, but they they were spiritually blind. They couldn't see Jesus for who he was. They couldn't see Jesus' true identity. Now, we're we're in the second week of a seven-part series that's exploring the identity of Jesus. We've deliberately positioned this series during a season called Lent, the weeks that lead up to, uh, to Holy Week, Good Friday and Easter, because that's a huge Jesus celebration. And so we're doing this series on who Jesus is. The series is called The Great I Am. 
Each week we're considering one of the I am statements that Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you brought a Bible with you. Turn with me to John chapter 8 or find it on your electronic device. Uh, Last week we learned that this title, I am, was how God identified himself in the pages of the Old Testament. So when Jesus arrives on the scene saying, I am, it was a not too subtle claim to be God. Not only that, Jesus gave each I am title further definition by adding a descriptive phrase to it. So he would say, I am the bread of life what we looked at last weekend, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the light of the world, seven I am's in all. Here's another aspect of Jesus' I am statements. Uh, They're sometimes accompanied by miracles. Uh, So for example, last weekend, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He made that statement just after he had taken a little boy's lunch some rolls of bread and multiplied the bread to to feed a crowd of 5,000 hungry men plus women and children. And then he says, I am the bread of life after doing this multiplication of bread miracles. So the the miracle was a visual aid. So so today uh, we're gonna see, he makes this statement, I am the light of the world. And after that, what happens? He heals a man who was born blind, a visual aid. So Jesus' miracles were visual aids for the claims he made about himself. Let's read together Jesus' I am the light of the world statement, okay? We'll put it up here on the screen. You got your Bible open to John 8 anyway, but let's read this with our outdoor voices. Here we go. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. I am the light of the world. Light is one of John's key themes in his biography of Jesus. He uses light 23 times, which is more than twice as many times as it's used in any other uh, New Testament book. So today we're going to consider four passages in which John tells us what it is that Jesus sheds light on, what it is that Jesus' light reveals. So if you haven't taken your outline from your program yet, I encourage you to fill it in as we go, uh, either on your hard copy or or on your electronic device. Here's number one. What, What does Jesus' light reveal? Jesus' light reveals the person of God. Jesus' light reveals the person of God. Now, I've already told you what happened just after Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world. What what does Jesus do? I am the light of the world, and then he does what? Okay, this is an interactive sermon, all right? So Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and then what does he do? He heals a blind guy. Okay, now in the context, what's interesting is not only what he does immediately after he says, I am the light of the world, but what he does just before he says, I am the light of the world. So let let me give you the context, the the setting here. The place is Jerusalem, the holy city. It's the annual feast of tabernacles. There are thousands of people crowded into the holy city, perhaps hundreds of thousands of religious tourists who are there for this festival. And the festival celebrates harvest. 
So one of the things they do, the priests bring out this huge ceremonial basin of water and they pour it out in thanksgiving to God for having given them, given them the rain. Okay, pour out the water, the rain, thank you God. But God also gave them the sun, so they want to thank God for, for the sun. How do they do that? They pass out candles, thousands of candles. Everybody's holding a candle. There's a huge candelabra in the, in the temple itself that's lit up. Historians tell us that during the Feast of Tabernacles, the city of Jerusalem could be seen for miles away. This is the occasion when Jerusalem's all lit up and Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. A very obvious claim to be the God who gave the sun, who gives the light. You know, occasionally I run into skeptics of the Christian faith and they'll say to me something like, uh, well, you know, Jesus himself never claimed to be God, never said the words, I am God. Okay, so this is something that his disciples, his followers, it's a legend that they built up around Jesus after he left the scene. Really, well, what did Jesus claim for himself? We've been looking at John 8. Turn over to John 12, okay, just a couple of chapters. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 44, I want you to see in a few short verses how Jesus reiterates his claim indirectly to be God in these verses. Okay, verse 44, then Jesus cried out. Okay, this is something he wants everybody to hear. He's shouting this out. Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. Okay, if you believe in me, you believe in God. Jesus says, wow, that's an audacious claim. Next verse, verse 45, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. You look at me, you're looking at God. You don't think that's a claim to deity? You, you try saying that to somebody else. You look at me, you're looking at God. Yeah. What does he say in the next verse? I have come into the world as a light. I've come, come into the world means that he was pre-existent, that at one time he was outside the world and now he comes into the world. I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I've come into the world as a light. Light was one of God's most popular attributes in the Old Testament, kind of served as a nickname. God is the light. Psalm 27, the psalmist writes about God as light over and over. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 27, 1. Psalm 76, verse 4. God is radiant with light. Psalm 89, verse 15. Blessed are those who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. Psalm 104, verse 2. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. See, God had a very firmly established reputation in the Old Testament as the light of the world. So when Jesus arrived on the scene claiming the same thing for himself, it was an audacious proclamation of his deity. And what's more, Jesus didn't just say that he was the light of the world, he looked the part. You know, I'm thinking now of the occasion that Bible scholars refer to as the transfiguration. Okay, here's what happened. Jesus wanted to get away for a prayer retreat with a couple of his buddies, so they went up the side of a mountain, and Matthew 
Matthew records what happened next. Matthew 17, verse 2 says, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. His face shone like the sun. That glowing orb of gas that's the center of our solar system that burns at 27 million degrees, the sun that converts four million tons of mass to energy every second. Jesus' face shone like the sun. Anybody who tells you that oh, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but certainly not God come in the flesh, has never read the New Testament biographies of Jesus' life. I mean, these are eyewitness accounts written by people who, who knew Jesus personally, and they record that Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. You know, he, he was either a seriously deluded egomaniac or Jesus is God himself. The writer of the Old Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance, he is the bright light of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now friends, let me tell you what's so cool about this truth. Okay, if, if you want to get to know the, the awesome God of the universe, if you, if you want to get to know the awesome, all-powerful, incomprehensible, infinite God of the universe, it's possible. See, th th this God is, is knowable. We get to know him through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Get to know Jesus. So how do we get to know Jesus? Well, we have four engaging biographies of Jesus in our New Testament. So when was uh, the last time you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? You know, our Bible-savvy reading schedule that we're always trying to get you to follow, say, yeah, pick up a Bible reading schedule and read each day. It'll take us through the entire Bible in four years, but through the gospel accounts twice. Each gospel is covered two times. Get to know Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus because when Jesus comes to live on the inside by his spirit, you develop this intimate relationship with the one who is the glory of God, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. How cool is that? Get to know Jesus. He reveals the person of God to us. Number two, he reveals the path of eternal life. Okay, go back to John chapter 8. Verse 12, our theme verse for the day. Let me read it to you again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. Life is a common component in Jesus' I am statements. So here he says, I am the light of the world. You'll have the light of life. Last week it was, I am the bread of life. Okay, next weekend, uh, he's going to say, I am the gate for the sheep, and whoever enters through me will be saved, and they will have life, life to the full. So he's the gate that leads to, to life. Another I am statement declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Resurrection Sunday, Easter weekend, it's going to be, I am the resurrection and the life. You get the idea. Jesus is all about life. 
Life is another major topic in John's gospel. John refers to life 36 times, which is more than a quarter of the appearances of life in the entire New Testament. Under John's pen, life, life, life. And when John talks about life, you know, specifically eternal life, Please understand that he's not just talking about a quantity of life, eternal life. Oh, life that goes on and on forever and ever and ever and ever. No, not just a quantity of time, but a quality of life. Life that revolves around a deeply satisfying relationship with God. Life that is ultimately fulfilling. I mean, we, we wouldn't want eternal life if it was just about quantity and not about quality, would we? Okay, if you could live forever, but live forever with, with chronic pain, would you want that? If you could live forever, but live in relentless boredom, you interested? Or live with conflicted relationships, or live with deep sadness forever and ever and ever? Any takers? Yeah, I, I'm not interested, but if eternal life means a never-ending quality of life that's rich, richly fulfilling, then sign me up. Well, Jesus, the light of the world, reveals the path to that kind of life, to eternal life. Now, I want you to flip to another passage in John, John chapter 1, okay? So go back to the first chapter of John. In this opening chapter to his biography of Jesus, John ties together the two themes of Jesus as light and Jesus as life. Drop down to verses 4 and 5. We read these verses in our worship time this morning. John says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Life and light go together. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So light and life, they go together. Uh, I recently came across a copy of the magazine Outdoor Life. You can usually find it in your doctor's waiting area or the waiting area for your car repair guy, all right? So in this uh, magazine, I saw that they had an article on the ultimate survival kit, uh, 10 pieces of gear that will save your life. Now, I have no interest in those 10 pieces of gear except to find out what they are. Are you hooked like that when you read 10 whatevers? I want to know what those 10 are. So I, I opened the magazine and I read it and I thought, you know, several of these I could have come up with myself. Okay, uh, survival pieces of gear. Got to have a knife. Okay, you got to have uh, waterproof matches. Got to have food rations. I could have come up with that. But then, then they listed some things I wouldn't have thought of. A whistle. How many of you would have put whistle in your top 10? Okay, a whistle. Or, or a sleep bag, a, a thermo sleep bag, or portable aqua, whatever it is, it just takes your water and it purifies it. See, these are things I wouldn't have thought. There's one thing on the list, though, I thought, oh, this is going to be at the top of everybody's list. Indeed, it was number two on their list, and that is a light. They, they, they recommended a, you know, a, a headlamp so that you can have hands free. But it's obvious, isn't it? If we're going to survive, if we're going to come out of our life-threatening experience alive, then one of the biggest obstacles to overcome will be darkness. Okay, back to John chapter 1, verse 5, its description of Jesus that I read a moment ago. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness 
has not overcome it. Jesus' light overcomes darkness. Darkness is a key theme in the Bible, spiritual darkness. It's a darkness that makes it impossible for us to find our way home to eternal life. And that's why it takes Jesus, the light of the world, to reveal that path. Do you know what Jesus' most common healing miracle is in the New Testament accounts of his ministry? Okay, so he heals people who are, are lame. You know about those. He touches people who are, are, are lepers and their leprosy is cured. Okay, on one occasion, he heals a, a, a woman who was hemorrhaging. Uh, another occasion, he heals a guy who had a shriveled hand and he makes it whole. Occasionally, he would even raise people from the dead. But none of those are his most frequently performed healing miracles. What do you think the most frequently performed healing miracle is? Giving sight to the blind. It's almost as if it's a constant object lesson for us. You're spiritually blind. Only I can make you see. Have you discovered that yet, that spiritually speaking, you can't find your way to God? Spiritually speaking, you can't find your way to eternal life. You, you can't see. If you haven't yet surrendered your life to Christ, you're spiritually blind. And if you say, well, you know, I just don't see my need for God. I don't see my need for eternal life. Exactly. Because you're spiritually blind. The Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says that the God of this age, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory, the light of the gospel. But Paul goes on a few verses later, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 4, and says, but God has shown his light into our lives, giving us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Where do we get the light? to shine in our hearts, to give us a knowledge of God's glory and the path to eternal life. You get it from Jesus. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, he can open your eyes, your spiritually blinded eyes, and give you eternal life today. today. And if you are a Christ follower and you've made that decision, my question for you is, who do you know that's still spiritually blind? So you got a friend at school you got a coworker, you got a neighbor who, who still doesn't see their need for God, doesn't see their need for eternal life, doesn't see their need for a relationship with Jesus. Only Jesus can open their blinded eyes. So are you praying for them? You know, are you already strategizing how you're going to invite them to Easter weekend at Christ Community Church in a few weeks? You know, that's the one time a year when people who don't go to church think, eh, maybe we ought to go to church. Are they going to come at your invite? You know, let, let me encourage you, even now, if you're thinking about it, jot down a couple of names. Here's somebody I'm going to invite because right now they're spiritually blind and only Jesus can make them see. You get it? Got it. Will you do this? Okay, that was weak, but, but I'll trust the Holy Spirit of God to lead you to write down a couple of names and begin praying for people. Number three, what does the light of Christ reveal? Reveals the presence of sin. So let's look at another passage in John's gospel, John chapter 3, okay? Turn over to John chapter 3. John 3, 16 is probably the most familiar verse in the entire Bible. Many people have heard of it. You know, years ago, Tim Tebow used to put it on his eye black whenever he played football. 
So people have seen that reference before. I have it tattooed on my right forearm because I found that it opens conversations about what it says. People are familiar with the verse, but they've, you know, the reference, but they've never heard the verse. And so as I'm talking to a coffee barista or I'm, you know, talking to a guy at the gym or I'm talking to somebody else who wears a tat, it gives me an opportunity to say, you know what this verse says? For God so loved the world, you too. God so loved the world, you included, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. Now, let's read what John says next. Okay, what happens after John 3.16? Drop down to verse 19. This is the verdict. Light, speaking of Jesus, light has come into the world, but people love darkness. There's that darkness theme again. People love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that, that it may be seen plainly that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. Okay, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And this son, Jesus, John tells us, came into the world as the light. But John says people reject the light. Why? Well, what does John say? He says people reject the light because they prefer darkness. Now, why would they prefer darkness? John's answer, because they don't want their sinful deeds exposed. Now, I want to challenge John's premise here for just a moment. He says, people don't step into the light because they don't want their evil deeds exposed. Really? People don't want their evil deeds exposed? Try telling that to the producers of Temptation Island. You, you seen that reality show? On I, I have not seen it. <laughs> But I read about it when it first came out. I was you know, interested in its format. So here, here's the format, so you never have to turn to it, okay? They take four couples each week. I can't recall whether they're married couples or couples who've been going together for some time. And they take them to an exotic island and they split up the couples. And the, the women they put in a part of the island where they're surrounded by really handsome single men. And the men they take to another part of the island where they're surrounded by really beautiful single women. And the question is, which of these couples are going to remain faithful to their spouses? And so TV viewers have a, a front row seat to watch people fall into temptation and destroy relationships. How fun is that? It's voyeurism at its worst. But, but, but John says, John says people prefer darkness. They prefer to hide in the dark shadows because they don't want their sins exposed. Come on, John, seems to me like we live in a culture where people love to expose their sins and love to have others watch them as they expose their sins. Yes, but here's what John had in mind. John wasn't talking about having our sins exposed in a frivolous, entertaining sort of way. He was talking about having our, our sins exposed to a righteous and holy God. To a God who takes sin seriously. To a God who sees sin as detestable. To a God who sheds light on our sins so that we will forsake those sins. 
See, that's the sort of exposure, exposure, John says, that people want nothing to do with, and that's why they reject the light of the world. They reject Jesus. That even though they come up with other reasons as to why they're rejecting him, the real reason, they don't want their sins exposed. You know, Lee Strobel, one-time legal affairs editor for the Chicago Tribune and avowed atheist at the time, eventually came to faith in Christ. It's a, a moving story. You ought to read it for yourself sometime. But Lee gets skeptics. Lee gets people who hold Jesus at arm's length. In his best-selling book, Case for Faith, Lee tells the story of a, uh, of a guy who claimed to have intellectual doubts about Christianity. Okay, this is why I can't put my trust in Christ, but Lee detected that these in intellectual doubts were a smokescreen. They weren't the real reason for this guy's resistance to Jesus. Let me read it to you. Lee writes, once I was talking with an ex-Marine who said, I'm miserable. I got a wife and kids, and I'm making more money than I can spend with both hands, and I'm sleeping with every woman in town, and I hate myself. You got to help me. But don't give me any of that God talk because I can't believe that stuff. We talked for hours and finally I said, maybe you think you're shooting straight with me, but I'm not sure you are. I don't think your problem is that you can't believe. I think that it's you won't believe because you're afraid to give up the things that help you get through the night. He thought for a while and then he said, yeah, I guess that's true. I can't imagine sleeping with just one woman. I can't imagine going with less money than I make, which I'd have to do because I lie to get it. He was finally trying to be honest. That man would argue for hours and hours about cerebral doubts. I mean, he would convince people that he couldn't believe because he had too many intellectual objections, but they were merely a fog he used to obscure his real hesitations about God. You follow the story? I mean, this is a guy who's running away from the light because the light reveals the presence of sin in his life, and he just doesn't want to deal with that sin. He doesn't want to abandon it. Are you ready to deal with your sin? You know, if, if we're ready to deal with our sin, John says in the verses I just read, John 3, verse 21, that, that, then we'll willingly come into the light. Now, what does it mean to willingly come into the light? It means that we'll own up to our shortcomings. You know, not just our, our flagrant sins that everybody sees anyway. It would be foolish for us to try to deny them. But even our secret hidden faults, even the ones that we think are not a big deal, even the ones that nobody else is aware of, we step into the light. We own up to that. Why would we do that? Because the same light that exposes our sin, listen, the same light that exposes our sins banishes them from our lives. Jesus, the light of the world, drives darkness out of our lives. First John chapter 1, verse 9. This is an epistle, a letter that John wrote after he wrote his, his gospel. It's toward the end of your New Testament. John says, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, if we'll get honest, if we'll step into the light and allow our sins to be exposed, he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How does Jesus do that? Does he wave his magic wand over our lives and make the, the sins poof, disappear? No. 
He goes to the cross and dies a violent death, taking the punishment our sins deserve. He pays their penalty. See, the penalty for sin is death. You go your way instead of God's way. You disconnect from the giver of life. The consequence is death, spiritual, physical, eternal death. Jesus comes to the planet, dies on the cross, taking the penalty our sins deserve. He rises from the dead, and now he alone has the power and the authority to wipe your sin slate clean. He alone. Jesus The light that exposes your sin has the power to banish your sin. Come on, if this were a Baptist church, there would be some hallelujahs, right? Come on. To banish your sins. And if you're thinking, well, this is a great verse, like if I'm not yet a Christ follower for someone who needs to surrender to Christ, it's a great verse. If you've never surrendered to Christ, it's where you begin. You get honest, you get real about your sin, you confess it to God and you allow Jesus to drive it away, to forgive it because of what he did on the cross. But even if you're a believer, this is something you do on a daily basis. This is a role that Jesus continues to play in your life as the light of the world. You make time. You make time every single day to get real, to get quiet before God and say, okay, you're the light of the world, shine in my life. Shine on my priorities. Is there any darkness there? Shine on my relationships. Shine on what's come out of my mouth in the last 24 hours. Shine on how I've spent my money recently. Shine on what I've been putting in front of my eyes for entertainment. Shine on how I've been treating other people, especially the poor. Shine on whether or not I've been a servant to others as you've called me to do. Shine. And then you wait. And the light exposes sin. And then you say, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, because you died on the cross for those sins and you are the light of the world, banish them from my life. And the light drives the darkness away. It is a wonderful thing to do on a regular basis. You know, historically, this has been one of the emphases for Lent for for the past couple centuries. Excuse me, for 20 centuries. Lent has been seen as a time of confession, a time of getting honest before God, a time of saying, okay, I've allowed too much darkness in my life as a Christ follower, and it's time to deal with it seriously. I want to get real with God. I want to go deeper with God. I want more of the Holy Spirit's power in my life. You know, if if that's you, this is what you want, then make Lent a time of allowing the light to expose sin and drive it out of your, your heart and life. Number four, what does Jesus' light reveal? It reveals the plan of action. Now, I'm just going to touch on this one briefly, and then then we'll close. I want you to turn to John chapter 11. Uh, This is actually going to be the chapter we look at on Easter weekend, but I'm going to take a brief glimpse at it today. A little historical background here. At the beginning of, of John 11, Jesus is faced with a very difficult decision. Uh, He's just received word that one of his best friends, a dude named Lazarus, is deathly sick. And his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, have sent word to Jesus, please come to our hometown of Bethany and heal Lazarus before he dies. 
But Jesus, instead of going to Bethany, he delays the trip to Bethany, and later on in the chapter we learn why. Jesus is actually giving Lazarus time to die, so he has the opportunity then to raise him from the dead. Well, the, the, the time finally comes for Jesus to depart, to go to Bethany. But now his disciples are objecting. They're saying, Jesus, we don't want to go to Bethany. See, Bethany is in the county. It's in the province of Judea. And in Judea, they want to kill you. There's a bounty on your head. Let's not go to Bethany. Not a good idea. It sounds like reasonable advice to me. Or, or is it? I mean, how do we make decisions when we're weighing conflicting data? How do we make decisions? Maybe you're faced with a really big decision in your life today. How do we make decisions when the people who are advising us don't agree with each other? Or when all the options we're considering look equally bad? Or conversely, when all the options we're considering look equally good? How do we make up our minds what to do? Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples, John 11, verses 9 and 10. He says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Say, daylight. Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. See, Jesus wasn't worried about going to Bethany because he knew he was walking in the light. He was following the Heavenly Father's leading. God loves to direct his people. You know, in, in Old Testament times, when the Israelites were traveling from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, do you remember how God led them? He illuminated the correct route by traveling ahead of them in a bright, blazing pillar of fire. There was no chance they'd get lost, no chance they'd make a wrong turn. So how does Jesus direct us today? No blazing pillars of fire, I don't think. How does Jesus shine his light when we're stuck making a decision on the best plan of action? Well, the primary way that Jesus does this, according to Psalm 119, uh, verse 105, is through his word. The psalmist says to God, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. A lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Now, please understand, this doesn't mean that the Bible is like one of those crazy eight balls we had as a kid. Ever had one of those? You know, you ask it a question and then you turn it over and the correct answer appears. You know, the Bible often doesn't give you a direct answer. You know, it doesn't say things like, take that job in Phoenix. You know, or major in chemistry. Or don't marry Jason. Or buy the Ford instead of the Toyota. Don't, don't you wish God's word, you could open it up and it would say those kind of, It's not the way the Bible works. What the Bible does is give us godly principles to live by. And then it gives us godly principles and then it draws us close to Jesus, the light of the world. So that when it comes time to make decisions big and small, we choose wisely. See, this is why it's so important to become a daily Bible reader, to saturate your life with God's Word, to pick up one of those Bible-savvy reading schedules and to read it every day, to draw close to Christ because He's the light of the world. And when you're in the throes of making difficult decisions, you'll find that Jesus, the light of the world, sheds light on the right thing to do. 
So Jesus, he's the light of the world. He wants to reveal to us today first the person of God. If you want to get to know the awesome God of the universe, get to know Jesus. Okay, read the four biographies of his life in the, the New Testament because in getting to know Jesus, you're going to get to know God. He's going to reveal the path of eternal life because outside of Jesus, we're all spiritually blind. We don't see the way to God. We don't see the way to eternal life. Our friends don't see it unless their eyes are opened by Christ. He reveals the presence of sin during this Lenten season. Let that be true of you, that you spend time before him and say, shine into the dark corners and crevices, niches of my life and burn out the darkness. And he lights up the plan of action. You know, he makes you wise as, as you get to know him through his word, saturate your life with his word, draw close to him. You'll find that more and more and more you have a sense of his leading in your life. Let's pray together. Then we're going to sing a song, a closing song of worship, as well as collect our gifts. Would you pray with me? If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, maybe today you were insulted when I said you're spiritually blind. It certainly insulted the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were religious. How could they be spiritually blind? And maybe that's what you're thinking. I grew up going to church. I know all the right stuff. And yet you're still spiritually blind. The God of this age has blinded your mind so you can't see the light of the gospel. Christ wants to shine in your heart today. Would you let him? Would you say, yes, Lord, touch my spiritual eyes so I can see. Let me see you for who you are. And if you're a Christ follower, would you allow the light of the world to shine into your heart right now as I'm praying and you're listening across our, our four campuses, or you're listening online right now, where, wherever you are, would you take a moment and say, light of the world, shine on the darkness in my life so that I see it, so that I can repent of it, so that you can banish it from my life. Jesus, we live in a dark world, and we want to be reflectors of your light. Teach us how to do that. We pray in your name. Amen.